Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. As a lifelong hobbyist devoted to, you know, natural aquarium systems, the idea of outfitting or setting up my aquariums to facilitate biological processes is simply second nature. With botanicals in play, the concept of them serving as a medium for biological support is sort of baked into our processes, isn't it? It's just what we do. And you don't need to invest in all sorts of plastic filter media, blocks, beads, noodles, etc. to facilitate biological filtration in your botanical method aquarium. I use a lot of all-in-one aquariums in my work, that is, aquariums with a rare compartment housing the return pump and a heater, with space intended to hold so-called biological media. I run them empty. Why? Because the aquarium itself, or more specifically, the botanical materials and the rocks, everything with it which comprises your botanical method aquarium infrastructure, acts as a biological filter system, if you will. In other words, the botanical materials present in our system provide enormous surface area upon which the beneficial bacteria, biofilms, and fungal growths can colonize. These life forms utilize the organic compounds present in the water as a nutritional source. We've talked about this for quite a while now, better part of a decade, but it's kind of interesting, right? And the part about the biofilms and fungal growth sounds awful familiar to listeners of the tent, doesn't it? Let's talk about our buddies, the biofilms, just a bit more, one more time. Because nothing seems as contrary to many hobbyists who are not familiar with our craft than to for us to sing the praises of these gooey-looking strands of bacteria. Structurally, biofilms are surprisingly strong units, which offer their colonial members sort of an onboard nutritional source, uh, exchange of metabolites, protection, and cellular communication. They're really an ingenious natural design, and they form extremely rapidly on just about any hard surface that's submerged in water. When I see aquarium work in which biofilms are considered a nuisance and suggestions are made that it can be eliminated by, you know, reducing nutrients in the aquarium, I usually cringe, mainly because no matter what you do, biofilms are ubiquitous and they're always present in our systems. We may not see the famous long stringy snot of our nightmares, but the reality is that biofilms are present in our tanks regardless inside every return hose, filter compartment, and power head, on every surface, every rock, or every piece of wood. They're there. The other reality is that biofilms are something that we as aquarists typically have feared because of the way they look. This is also a familiar theme, isn't it? In and of themselves, biofilms are not harmful to our fishes. They function not only as a means to sequester and process nutrients, yes, a filter of sorts, they also represent a beneficial food source for fishes. Now look, I can see rare scenarios where massive amounts of biofilms, you know, relative to the water volume of the aquarium, could consume significant quantities of oxygen and be problematic for the fishes that reside in your tank. These explosions in biofilm growth are usually the result of adding too much 
you know, botanical material too quickly to an aquarium. And they're exacerbated by insufficient oxygenation and circulation within the aquarium. Now, these are very unusual circumstances resulting from a combination of missteps by the aquarist. Typically, however, biofilms are far more beneficial than they are even remotely detrimental to our aquariums. Nutrients in the water column, even when in low concentrations, are delivered to the biofilm through the complex system of water channels where they're absorbed into the biofilm matrix where they become available to the individual cells. Some biologists feel that this efficient method of gathering energy might be a major evolutionary advantage for biofilms, which live in particularly turbid, eco, turbid uh, and turbulent ecosystems, you know, like streams, rivers, or, or aquariums for that matter, with significant flow where the nutrient concentrations are typically lower and quite widely dispersed. Really ingenious stuff. And again, biofilms have been used successfully in water or wastewater treatment for well over a hundred years. In these types of filter systems, the medium, typically sand, offers this huge surface area for microbes to attach to and to feed on the organic matter in the water being treated. The formation of biofilms upon the media consume the undesirable organics in the water effectively filtering it. Biofilm acts as an absorbent layer in which organic materials and other nutrients are concentrated in the, from the water column. And as you might suspect, higher nutrient concentrations tend to produce biofilms that are thicker and denser than those that grow in low nutrient concentrations. I know, surprise. It's pretty much a given that any botanicals or leaves that you drop into your aquarium will, over time, break down. Wood as well. And typically, before they break down, they'll recruit, which is another fancy word for it, a coating of some rather unsightly-looking growth. Well, unsightly to those who have not been initiated into our little world of decomposition, fungal growth, biofilms, tinted water, all that stuff. And they maintain that an aquarium, by definition, is this pristine-looking place without a speck of anything deemed unesthetically unattractive. Did I say unesthetically? Or aesthetically unattractive by the masses out there. And then, of course, there are our other rather slimy-looking friends that kind of get your attention now and then. The fungi. Yep, the stringy stuff that you see covering leaves, you know, botanicals and wood that you place in your aquarium. Let's face it, um, these are things that you see and you have seen for decades. Let's talk about why you actually want this stuff in there in the first place. The fungi, known as aquatic hyphomycetes, produce an enzyme which breaks down botanical material in water. Essentially, they are primary influencers of leaf maceration. In other words, they help break up leaves. They're remarkably efficient at what they do too. In as little as three weeks, as much as 15% of the decomposing leaf biomass in many aquatic habitats is processed by fungi, according to one study that I read. Aquatic hyphomycetes play a key role in the decomposition of plant litter of terrestrial origin, hello, <laughs> which is an ecological process in rainforest streams that allows for the transfer of energy and nutrients to higher trophic levels. In other words, making it available for various organisms to feed upon. This is what ecologists call nutrient cycling, folks. The, these fungi colonize the leaf litter and the twigs and all that stuff soon after they're immersed in water. And the fungi mineralizes organic carbon and nutrients and they convert coarse particulate matter into, wait for it, <laughs> fine particulate organic matter. They increase leaf litter palatability to shredding organisms, you know, shrimp, insects, and even fishes, which helps further facilitate physical fragmentation. Now, fungi tend to colonize wood and botanical materials because they offer them a lot of surface area to thrive and live out their life cycle. And cellulose, hemocellulose, and lignin, the major components of wood and botanical materials, 
are easily degraded by fungi, which possess enzymes that can digest and assimilate these materials and their associated organics. Interesting stuff, right? Now, fungi are regarded by biologists to be the dominant organisms associated with decaying leaves and streams. So this gives you some idea as to why we see them in our aquariums, right? In our aquarium work, we typically see fungal colonization on wooden leaves all the time. Now, most hobbyists would look on in sheer horror if they saw the same extensive amount of fungal growth on their carefully selected, artistically arranged wood pieces as they would in virtually any aquatic habitat in nature. Yet, it's one of the most common, elegant, and beneficial processes that occurs in natural aquatic habitats, fungal colonization. It's everywhere. Of course, fungal colonization of wood and botanicals is but one step of a long process which occurs in nature and, of course, in our aquariums. And as hobbyists, once we see the first signs of this stuff, the majority of us tend to reach for the algae scraper or brush and just remove as much of this stuff as possible immediately. And sure, this might provide some aesthetic relief for some period of time, but it comes right back because these materials will provide a continuous source of food and colonization sites for fungal growths for an indefinite period of time. I know that the idea of circumventing this stuff is so appealing to so many hobbyists, but the reality is that you're actually interrupting an essential, ecologically beneficial natural process. And as we know, nature abhors a vacuum and new growths will return to fill the void, thus prolonging the process. You'll want this stuff in your aquariums. Again, think about the role of aquatic hypomycetes in nature. The colonization of fungal growths facilitates access to the energy trapped in leaves and other botanical materials found in tropical streams for a variety of other organisms to utilize. And as we know by now, fungi play a huge role in the decomposition of leaves, both in the wild and in the aquarium. So with these special enzymes that they utilize, aquatic fungi can degrade most of the molecular components in leaves in a relatively short period of time, like cellulose, hemocellulose, starch, pectin, lignin, all that stuff. Fungi, although not the most attractive-looking organisms to many human beings, are incredibly useful, and they play well with a surprisingly large number of aquatic life forms to create substantial food webs, both in the wild and in our aquariums. And it all comes full circle when we talk about filtration in our aquariums. Let's come back to this little topic one more time. Again, people often ask me, Scott, what filter do you use in a botanical method aquarium? And my answer is usually that it just doesn't matter. You can use any type of filter. The reality is, if allowed to evolve and grow unfettered, the aquarium itself, all of it, becomes the filter. You can embrace this philosophy regardless of the type of filter or aquarium you employ. So yeah, my sumps and integrated filter compartments in my all-in-one tanks are essentially empty. I may occasionally employ some activated carbon and you know, in small amounts if I'm feeling it, but that's about it. The way I see it, these areas... Uh, in a botanical method aquarium, simply provide more water volume, more gas exchange, a place, you know, for more bacterial attachment, you know, surface area, and perhaps an area for botanical debris to settle out. Maybe I'll remove it, if only to prevent it from slowing down the flow of my return pumps. But that's about it. A lot of people are initially surprised by this. However, when you look at it in the broader context of botanical method aquariums as miniature ecosystems, it all really makes sense, doesn't it? The work of these microorganisms and other life forms takes place throughout the aquarium. Again, your aquarium is the filter. The biomass of life forms in the aquarium comprise the ecology and the physical structure as well. 
I recall an experiment I did about 12 years ago, another one of those explorations into letting the ecology within the aquarium and the aquarium itself become the filter. Uh, my dear friend, the late uh, Jake Adams of Reef Builders, came up with what he called Eco Reef Concept or Eco Reef Zero, I think he called it. Essentially, an approach to keeping coral that eschews the superfluous gear, you know, life, rock, macroalgae, sand, etc., in favor of using the coral biomass and the physical aquarium itself as the filter. Kind of cool. And I remember after seeing Jake's work in that area, you know, again, probably about 12 years ago, and a lot of having a lot of discussions with him, I immediately realized that this approach was philosophically unlike anything I'd ever attempted before. Yet, it somehow resonated for reasons I could not entirely put together in my head. This approach was developed to focus on creating an excellent environment for corals, providing them with everything that they needed to assure growth and health, and nothing that they didn't, while keeping things as simple and uncomplicated as possible. Literal aquatic minimalism, if you will. While in principle, the concept of the zero reef is ridiculously simple and almost mundane if you follow the history of modern reefing techniques, it's downright revolutionary from a philosophical standpoint. So much energy and effort has been expended in recent years attempting to, you know, keep corals in high biodiversity, multifaceted reef systems with all of their competing life forms that anything else seems on the surface to be almost heretical. I think the proper description for the approach would be something like minimal diversity coral husbandry. Jay called it reduced ecology reefing. It's sort of the anti-reef approach, if you will. But what was interesting about this is zero reef approach. It essentially distills coral keeping down to its most basic and simple elements and utilizes very minimal technology and energy to achieve success. The premise is simple. Do away with the unnecessary distractions of conventional reef aquariums. You know, live rocks, sand beds, macroalgae, large fish populations, cleanup crews, extensive equipment, etc., 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 and just focus slow, solely on the coral with the bulk of the biomass in the system being contained in the coral tissue itself. What I only half jokingly referred to as revolutionary about the approach is really the mindset that you need to adopt, a reliance on your intuition, a trust in the most basic skills as in a marine aquarius. This differs from the modern you know, convention significantly because this philosophy really focuses on one element of marine aquarium keeping, the needs of your coral. Indeed, on the coral itself. While there's nothing wrong with the traditional approaches, of course, by their very nature, they tend to shift focus off of the true stars of the aquarium, the corals. What you want to do in a zero reef approach uh, is to foster the beneficial bacteria populations to help break down metabolic waste products without a huge diversity of other life forms to burden the system in any way. In essence, what you're looking at is a sort of a petri dish for coral culture or the equivalent of a flower in a vase, totally different than any other saltwater experience I'd ever had up to that point. It is to a conventional reef aquarium what hot couture is to ready-to-wear clothing in the fashion industry. An individual special aquarium conceived to experiment with simplified coral husbandry. It's not your father's frag tank, and it was pretty interesting from an aesthetic standpoint too, and I think that's, you know, it's a scalable thing. I remember from my zero reef, I decided to utilize like a four-gallon aquarium with the one side and the bottom painted black for aesthetics because, you know, and my little reef was located on my desk in my office where I was able to enjoy it pretty much all day, every day, and the aquarium was equipped with a simple internal filter with the media removed, of course, a heater and I think it was like 7 to 10 watts of 6700K LED lighting. The setup of the system could not have been easier. Literally pour water in the aquarium, plug everything in, and you're underway. 
the coral specimen was mounted on a single piece of slate. I chose slate because it, the, the whole philosophy of this thing postulates that the porosity of live rock, which is what we use in a lot of reef tanks, coupled with the onboard life that accompanies it, places an excessive burden on the system solely designed to go coral, thus detracts from the needs of the coral. Slate has a minimal pore structure, primarily on its surface, and it doesn't, you know, does not provide a huge matrix of nooks and crannies for detritus and nutrients to accumulate in. It's essentially inert and has little, if any, measurable impact on water parameters. Quite frankly, it could have just placed the coral right on the bottom of the aquarium, but the slate does provide a bit of, you know, aesthetics or whatever. I mean, I can't totally depart from that, right? <clears throat> but it really didn't get any easier than that in terms of maintenance. I topped off for evaporation, which was like mere ounces uh, every week, and exchanged 100% of the water every Thursday. Not a water exchange, mind you. This was a complete replacement of the, all the water in the tank, a true water, ex- uh, water change. The maintenance process literally took five minutes, and most of that was consumed by putting the towel around my aquarium so I didn't spill on my desk. I fed this coral small quantities of frozen mysis every Tuesday and Wednesday or when I had a chance. Oh, what did I use? I used a, a, what was called a bubble coral, a plerogyra a simplex, and um, it did great. In fact, the, probably the most difficult decision in the whole process was simply deciding what coral to use as the inhabitant of the aquarium. And the candidate coral, you know, had to be one that's fleshy, voluminous, and can safely be placed in a system without sand or rocks. And that's why the bubble coral worked beautifully. I used the green bubble coral, so it had a nice sexy little tint. The piece of coral was uh, about four inches in length when I started the experiment and um, plopped right in. Bubble coral has this reputation for being relatively easy to keep, yet it's not without its challenges too. And although Jake and I had discussions, he recommended euphilia or faviids, wellsophilia, those kind of corals as candidates. I forged ahead with the bubble coral for the simple reason that I like the way it looks. It's cool. The coral's feeding reactions were immediate and impressive. The feeding schedule was consistent with the protocol that we discussed. Feed the coral a couple days before a water change. This allowed the coral to process and eliminate waste products during that time period and for me to export as much of the metabolic waste as I could as quickly as possible. And being a habitual water changer and nutrient export fiend since my early days in the hobby was a huge asset to me in this approach. Water changes are of critical importance because they're not only exporting metabolites from the system, but they reset the trace elements, the minerals, all that stuff that the coral needs for long-term growth and health. I never dosed anything, nor did I test, which is another radical departure from my habits developed over the decades. But I let the coral talk to me and observed its health carefully. Despite my religious devotion to water testing and reef tanks, I've secretly long believed that corals will sort of tell you when they're happy and that this approach sort of validated my belief. I can honestly say that I'd never developed such an intimate relationship with an individual coral before. I think I'm going to try this again soon with my favorite all-time coral, Pacillopora, a stony, small polyp stony coral. It'll be cool. Now, sure, the zero reef approach is not the single best way to keep every coral or anemone or and every bare bottom, low diversity, you know, aquarium that comes along is not to be enshrined as an affirmation that this is the best way to keep marine life or whatever. In fact, it may not work for some species. The point is, it's one of those experiments. It's worth investigating and, and playing around with. It's always good to try a new technique, new avenues, new approaches, no matter how simple or how elementary or radical the approach seems. I find d- uh, different ecological approaches to aquarium keeping fascinating. It took years of observing nature and not just a, you know the how it looks kind of standpoint, but from a how it works standpoint. And then trying to synthesize this information and it's made me a better hobbyist, I think. The Botanical Method Aquarium 
just like a reef aquarium, really. It's not really a method. It's literally just nature doing her thing and us keeping our grubby little hands off the process. Eventually, I got it through my thick skull that aquariums, just like the wild habitats that they represent, have an ecology comprised of countless organisms doing their thing. They depend on multiple inputs of food to feed the biome at all levels. This meant that scrubbing the living shit out of our aquariums was denying the very biosha which comprised our aquariums their most basic needs. That little unlock changed everything for me. Suddenly it all made sense. And this is carried over into the botanical method aquarium concept. It's a system that literally relies on the, you know, the biological material present in the system to facilitate food production, nutrient assimilation, and reproduction of life forms at various trophic levels. It's changed everything about how I look at aquarium management and the creation of functional closed aquatic ecosystems. It's really put the word natural back into the aquarium keeping parlance for me. The idea of creating a multi-tiered ecosystem, which provides a lot of the requirements needed to just operate successfully with just a few basic maintenance practices, the passage of time, a lot of patience and careful observation is irresistible. Unlocks are everywhere. They're the product of our experience, acquired skills and grand experiments like the eco reef or whatever. Stuff that, although initially seeming trivial, serves to move the needle a little bit on aquarium practice and shift minds over time. It's my sincere hope that you'll open your mind to the process of experimentation, trying new things, and share your results with fellow hobbyists as you take your first steps into what really is previously uncharted territory. Stay bold. Stay provocative. Stay undeterred. Stay curious. Stay humble. Stay diligent. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.